Hello and welcome to the second edition of the new gardening podcast from the Royal Horticultural Society. Each fortnight we're going to bring you a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening. We'll discuss plant care and pest control, garden design, growing your own fruit and vegetables. RHS experts will answer the gardening queries you've sent in to us. And we'll also help you choosing the right plants for the right place, whether you live in a town flat, semi-detached or on a country estate. Our gardening team will also give you invaluable seasonal advice on the jobs to tackle in your garden and expert guidance on how to do them. Plus, we'll update you on the RHS events, activities and special offers around the country. Whatever your age and ability, if you're interested in gardening, this podcast is for you. Coming up in today's podcast, slugs, can they be a gardener's friend? RHS experts spring to their defence. Is your soil suitable to grow vegetables? We explain how you can check it. And we meet Wisley curator Colin Crosby to explore the unseen side of a world-class RHS garden in spring. But first, let's find out what tasks the Wisley gardeners are tackling right now. Jan Lamborn here from the fruit team at Wisley. I've recently brought in um, about half a dozen troughs of strawberries. These are early varieties. One of them is called May, M-A-E, and the other one is Cambridge Vigor. They were planted up last autumn into troughs um, using fresh compost. And what I've actually done is brought them under, under cover in the glass house in the fruit demonstration gardens. And what that will do is, because they'll warm up a little quicker than being outside, they'll come into hopefully flowering and fruiting that much earlier. We might even get a crop two to three weeks early. So I'm looking forward to that. Something else you might like to think about doing uh, when you come to planting strawberries is as well as planting a main crop, which tends to fruit round about June time, is consider planting some perpetual strawberries. These are also called everbearer strawberries. And they will actually flower and fruit right through from the beginning of the season, right through to the first frosts. Uh, Two very good varieties that um, did well for us last year were Buddy, which is a new variety, very sweet, and Albion. Um, On the whole, people grow them outside, they're very hardy, they do very well in the ground. But equally, if you've just got a small pot, a small container, you could even grow some in, in a hanging basket, which is quite a nice way to do it. Um, grow bags of course are ideal if you want to raise them off the ground what you could do is to get a a small plank some bricks either side two or three bricks at either end just to raise them off the ground they do very well like that because they like good drainage if you can pop some holes in the bottom of the grow bags then they're absolutely ideal and then the fruit will hang either side of the grow bag it's not getting dirty because it's not touching the ground um, but absolutely ideal if you've just got a little bit of space perhaps at the edge of a patio in a nice warm spot So I'm Lee Hunt and I'm the Principal Horticultural Advisor here at Wisley. With National Gardening Week coming up, it's a great time to get out there and sow seeds for wildflowers. Now, these are things that are going to attract insects into your garden. They're really easy to grow. They want to grow. These are native wild plants that often just pop up in the countryside. So by digging over a patch in your garden, raking it, firming the soil down, by the, if you're doing this in March and April, they will germinate really very quickly. So a couple of weeks, three weeks, you'll start to see growth. And by June, July, they will be in full flower. Now, if you haven't got the room to do that, you can just take an existing lawn, cut a few slits in the grass and push in pots of wildflowers as well, which are readily available now in garden centres. Slot those in, firm them back down, keep them well watered until they establish. And again, they will begin to flower quite quickly too. 
we all know that uh, pollinating insects are declining. So by providing food plants like these wildflowers, then that gives them something to feed on and a reason to come in the garden. So not only do you get to see them up close, but they're providing food for them as well. What you need to look for is something like a mini meadow, and that's contained things like the cornflowers, corn cockles, the poppies, of course, we all love. And that's very easy. You can just get that in a mix that you scatter on, and all those things are ready in there. If you want something that lasts longer, go for something called a pictorial meadow. That's got the wildflowers, but a few of our cultivated favourites, things like the Californian poppies, that keep both the flowers and the food source going right through the summer. My name is Mario, and I look after the vegetable garden at RHS Weasley in Surrey. Well, at this time of the year, my main task is really ground preparation, which I believe is very important. Uh, it mainly consists of single digging the, the whole plot. I will have incorporated some um, organic matter, some compost of well-rotted manure, on top of that, this time of the year is also preparing for the summer crops. I'm in the process of sowing tomato seeds, peppers, chilies, all those crops that, although cannot be planted out until danger of frost is passed, have to be started now in a protected environment, glass house or even a windowsill as long as there is enough sunlight to get good, strong seedlings. At this time of the year is also when I start planting the early crops. One of the most important ones is potatoes. It is important because there are different types of potatoes which will extend the harvesting season until winter. The different types are early potatoes, uh, second early, early main crop, and main crop potatoes. Each type has got a different length of stain in the ground. And the most attractive for me is the early potatoes. They are relatively easy to grow. They can be very successfully grown in containers, like growing bags. And also, because they go in the ground end of March, beginning of April, it's very likely that they will completely escape the blight season, which all the other types of potato are susceptible to. And this is especially important for those of us which dislike using chemicals to control pests and diseases. If you grow them in growing bags, it's advisable to use a mix of 50% garden soil and 50% compost. The, the need for watering is reduced. The other important thing to keep in mind is you don't want to overcrowd potatoes if they are grown in containers. Three to five potatoes per growing bag is really the, 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 the most that you should be planting. That should guarantee a successful crop. There's more information about National Gardening Week and how to get involved, plus details on how to apply for the chance to win free wildflower seeds on the RHS website www.rhs.org.uk. You can also find out more about growing your own fruit and vegetables, including how to get a crop in only six weeks, in the March edition of the RHS award-winning magazine The Garden. 
Delivered free to RHS members, this month's edition also includes botanist James Wong's tips for exotic fruits that will thrive in the British climate. You're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Wisley creator Colin Crosby. Wisley Garden was started in 1903 as an educational garden to inspire and educate everyone who came through its front door, so that's all the visitors, but also to have the School of Horticulture so we could be training gardeners of the future as well. It's a garden of 240 acres. We have 70 gardeners, and I include myself as a gardener. We've got a school of horticulture where we've got 24 trainees that we're teaching them the practical skills to be the next generation of gardeners coming through. But also at Wisley, behind the scenes in the laboratory, we've got a science department where we're doing a lot of research into the pests and diseases which are affecting gardeners at home, and that's hidden from scene. We also have plant trialling and the RHS is the world's largest independent plant trialling organisation. And so on the Portsmouth Field you can come and see perennials, bedding plants, you can see fruit, vegetables, trees and shrubs being trialled for that coveted award of garden merit. And that happens behind the scenes. March and April are a wonderful time of year in the garden. You've got such a riot of colour. You've got the theatrical displays from the camellias, the rhododendron and magnolias. You've got masses of daffodils and tulips which will be flowering in the garden. And then you've got the choice perennials, early season ones which are coming through the ground. And then of course the blossoms from the cherry trees. There is so much colour and it really really is one of the highlights of the gardening year just to walk through any garden and especially RHS Garden Wisley during the springtime. Uh, visiting the garden in March and April time there are two parts of the garden or really three parts of the garden you must visit. Battleson Hill which is the theatrical display of the rhododendrons, camellias, the traditional woodland garden and then head over to the rock garden where you'll see the most beautiful and delicate alpines and bulbs which are growing there and also in the alpine display house and then down to the oldest part of Wisley Garden which is the wild garden and throughout the wild Wild garden, you'll see naturalistic drifts of bulbs, you'll see more flowering, spring flowering trees and shrubs, and a whole host of choice uh, herbaceous perennials that will be coming up in the early season. With all the activity, many visitors are unaware of the key role the garden plays in horticultural research. And behind the doors of its distinctive half-timbered laboratory building, RHS pests and disease experts work to identify and map the spread of new threats to our plants and gardens. Andrew Holstein and Andrew Salisbury are key members of the Wisley Entomology Department. And here we are, this is the uh, entomology room. Probably still recognisable to the first RHS entomologist who uh, worked here when the, when the building opened in 1918. Um, we still have bookshelves with the entomology library, which has been built up in over nearly 100 years. We have an insect collection with um, 23,000 specimens in it. Dead insects everywhere. In the moment on my desk, I have uh, some spiders, which were collected from uh, an experiment called Plants for Bugs, which I'm busily relabeling and curating, ready to go into the preserved uh, alcohol collection. I have a jar of mint beetles, blue mint beetles, which is a new pest of the country in 2011, uh, which I'm trying to rear on my desk and make observations on their life cycle. This is where we deal with all the animal inquiries which come in. A lot of these are inquiries which relate to something which is eating somebody's plants or being a nuisance in a garden, like, for example, a fox leaving excrement all over the place. 
But we also get inquiries about wildlife in gardens, how can they encourage birds, butterflies, bees, that sort of thing. And some of the inquiries which we get in turn out to be particularly interesting because sometimes we get an inquiry uh, which we open up the sample and we see a pest which we've never seen before. And that very often means it's something which may be new to Britain. And sometimes these are pests of considerable importance. For example, in recent years we discovered as a result of people sending in samples to Wisley pests like the horse chestnut, leaf mining moth, fuchsia gall mite, berberis sawfly, all of which have become major problems. The main problems for gardeners last year, largely due to the weather, and in fact almost every year, is slugs and snails. But we've recently looked at our data, and it turns out that 2012, we had the greatest proportion of slug inquiries we've had since records began. People sending in plants with damage from slugs and snails, and also how to try and control them. You have to say that, to start with, you'll never get rid of slugs and snails from your garden, so it is a case of um, trying to reduce the damage they cause. There's various methods of doing that. Uh, We always recommend that whenever you see a slug and snail in the garden, you pick it up and dispose of it, bag it and bin it, or various other ways that people come up with uh, destroying slugs and snails. But then the choices are biological control or chemical control with slug pellets, and we provide advice on um, how to use those and uh, uh, and all control methods available. We haven't actually tested the differences between the methods, but we do know from the data in the literature that both the nematode worm, when the conditions are right, you've got reasonably damp soil and it's reasonably free-draining soil, and it has to be said your main problem is slugs rather than the snails. The nematode biocontrol can work very well, but generally um, slug pellets are still the best method of control. People generally think slugs are all bad. Uh, it's not strictly true. Most slugs, particularly the larger slugs that you see out there, are actually quite useful. They tend to prefer feeding on decomposing, rotting organic matter. It's the little slugs which cause problems in gardens. Uh, they, live, uh, they spend a lot of time in the soil and they often come up and feed on plants overnight. So what they've done for us, a lot of them are good, what is known as detritivores, decomposers helping break down uh, rotting organic matter. The Plant for Bugs research project is one of the team's key priorities at the moment. The project aims to test the theory that native garden plants trap more insects, and therefore birds, into your garden than non-native plants. Oh yes, the Plants for for Bugs experiment is probably one of the largest experiments the RHS has ever carried out. And it's basically asking the question, do you really need to plant native plants in your garden to attract the most wildlife and we have a designed experiment ongoing which people who visit Wisley Gardens can come and see which consists of uh, beds of native plants near native plants which we've defined as plants that are related to our native plants um, but uh, are not native to the UK itself and we have uh, beds of plants which we call exotic which are from the southern hemisphere and unrelated to uh, our native garden plants. But all the plants in the plot serve the same sort of function in the garden. In one corner of the plot, you'll always find a climber. For example, the native climber is always a, is, is a honeysuckle. And there's also a shrubby evergreen in, in the centre of the plots. UK native, it's box. For the exotic plants, it's a pittosporum. So, so the, the, the plots themselves have the same design and look similar. And we're monitoring these, um, those beds for invertebrates in, in uh, four different ways. Pitfall traps, catching uh, insects that run across the ground. We're sucking insects off the plants with something called a vortice suction sampler. We're also recording the slugs and snails, because I'm sure gardeners want to know which of these plots has the most slugs and snails. Uh, and we also observe the flying insect visitors, those insects that are coming in and visiting the flowers on the plots. 
And in the three years the experiment has run so far, we've collected over 50,000 individual invertebrates. And we're at the moment in the process of analysing the data. Um, results will hopefully come out in the next year or so, but it's looking like all the plots attract a wide variety of insects. Andrew Holstead and Andrew Salisbury from the Wisley Entomology Department. The study runs until 2014, but the current results look promising for wildlife lovers who want to experiment with a wider choice of plants. If you want to find out more about the RHS research and wildlife projects, you can email us at podcast at rhs.org.uk or visit the website www.rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast or tweet it using hashtag RHS podcast. RHS Wisley is also home to the RHS gardening advice team that I'm part of. Each year we answer thousands of gardening questions by phone, email, letter and in person at our advice clinics at the RHS flower shows. Now let's join my fellow advisors Lee Hunt, Rebecca Mealy and plant disease specialist Jeff Denton to answer some of the queries we've received this month. Right, well we've got a question from Mrs Jane Nelson of Harrogate and it's quite simple it says I want to grow red trailing ivy leaf geraniums from seed but can't find a seed supplier anywhere can you help the bad news is from seed I couldn't find anyone who did actually supply that but I I think there's probably reasons for that I think that the it often the best geranium varieties are propagated from cutting so the seed varieties they're providing are mixed colours and therefore you would get some pinks and reds and whites in that. So I think there's two options here. I think either you have got to go and propagate. Perhaps you could buy a couple of cheap ones because they come in relatively cheaply in spring to garden centres, you know, literally for under a couple of pounds. And you could, if you do them early enough, get a few cuttings out of that to bulk your numbers up. Or it is to grow a packet of seeds and then when they do come into flower, you might have to select out the red ones and then either give away your... I'm sure your friends will be grateful to have some white and pink ones that you didn't want. OK, who's next? I've got the next question here. It's from Andrew Lamburn, and it was a telephone inquiry. Andrew proposes to put in an edible garden in April. And could we advise where we can get the soil tested for pollution, please? We live in Bath. It does make me wonder why he's worried about pollution, whether he's um, previously had an issue or or knows of something. Because um, in most gardens, the the soil might be under-cultivated, so not very fertile because it's not rich in organic matter and hasn't been fed. But it's quite unusual to um, find it's been polluted. I suppose the first thing to say is it helps if you have an idea what it's been polluted with because once you start to say right I'm going to get it tested if you haven't got a clue what you're testing for it quickly gets very very expensive and you have to go off to specialist labs yeah I mean you can always start by looking at this what's growing around it if there's weeds on it um, you can do what's known as a crest test. So you get a, a sample of the soil from the polluted area or the area that you think is infected. And then another sample from another part of your garden. So your control test. Get your, you know, your bog standard crest, sprinkle it on both and have a see what comes up and how it comes up. Um, crest is very sensitive to any pollutants and, and also is lettuce. It just, won't, it just won't germinate and grow if the soil's polluted. And if it germinates, then potentially it's just it's just a fertility problem you've got with the soil. That's a much cheaper route, isn't it? Yeah, and we have a, a soil test here at Wisley, don't we? 
and the charge is £25 for members and £30 for non-members. So our soil test tests for the um, major um, nutrients in the soil, but not nitrogen because that that's not fixed. And then also the actual texture of the soil and what your soil is composed of and the pH. And I suppose the important thing here is not only does the tests uh, provide a report identifying what the problems are, but also you'll get guidance about how any particular deficiencies or problems can actually be rectified. And when you think that uh, a single tree could cost 30, 40, 50 pounds, it's well worth spending a, a few pounds on getting a soil test, which will give you a very good idea about the condition of your soil, what improvements need to be made, if any, and to actually inform your gardening for the future. Yeah, we get quite a few people that are going to set up a, a new vegetable plot and, and get that tested before they set up. Or if they've recently had, say, lots of shrubs removed, it's a good idea to get an idea what the soil's like before they replant it. Right, I think we've got time for one more question that's been sent to the advice team here at Wisley from Lynn Bates in Newark. And it's a problem with cuttings. It says, for the past few years during late spring and the summer months, I've been taking cuttings from my favourite perennials, which gives the examples of euphorbias, salvias, actia and veronica. By November, I've got them into individual pots of healthy looking cuttings showing some growth. But that's where the problem starts. These cuttings are too small and they, they can't go out into the nursery beds. So I have to leave them in an unheated greenhouse in their small pots. And after a couple of bad frosts, they all turn black and die on me. She also says that she has covered them with fleece through the winter. And I'm wondering, Jeff, whether actually that's part of the problem. If we're putting them in an unheated greenhouse under fleece, could that be causing them to die back? So she's quite keen to actually find out what's going on and what she can do to get around this problem. One of the things is obviously to try and take cuttings and propagate earlier on in the season. Um, Often with shrubs and so on, we talk about semi-ripe cuttings, but with a lot of perennials, you take softwood cuttings early on. And uh, if you can get them uh, growing early on, they've got a long season, you'll be producing a larger plant, which itself will overwinter better. always worth using a a propagator to provide a bit of extra bottom heat that that will encourage good rooting and strong rooting early on she's uh, saying there that she's taking the cuttings and they're starting to grow but they didn't survive the frost but there's no indication and it it doesn't give detail there whether it is actually putting roots out or it's actually doing something further so it is worth just examining and taking one of the plants of maybe each of the um, plants that she's having trouble with and looking at the roots to see that it is actually doing okay there I think if the roots are looking healthy, unfortunately, if the root is having a problem, maybe there's some watering, overwatering, but actually it's a bit too cold to be watering that often. But with those ones, quite often in these humid environments, you'll actually start seeing fluffing and growth and kind of a fungus on the leaves. Rebecca, what could she do to improve the hygiene over winter in the glasshouse to prevent some of these problems obviously making sure that all the pots are you know washed out and clean before they're all potted up um fleece fleece is one of those things that you you have it hanging around in your greenhouse and you don't really do much to it you pull it out and then you put it on something and you, you know you can put it in the washing machine it, you, or, or hand wash it and, and then dry it out on the um you know the the washing line um 
And if she's seeing all these sort of fuzzy leaves and um, mouldy bits, what what about those? Well, I, I wouldn't put them in the compost. I'd, I'd you know, obviously remove the infected plants and put them in the bin or put them in, you know, not in your home compost and, and start again. And, you know, remove the source of infection to the other plants um, and, and just hopefully you know, and keep it nice and clean in there. It is worth mentioning that with a lot of diseases, they can overwinter on structures on the soil, um, in the compost, in the glasshouse, and there are quite a few sterilants that are used that you can clean hard surfaces with. So maybe there might be a lack of fungicides available for the disease, but cleaning up hard surfaces and hard areas and glasshouses can actually be a major benefit, particularly if you have um, gaps between cuttings, a gap, clean it up and then put new cuttings in. When you have plants that seem to be going there throughout the whole year, it just brings disease over so the message seems to be get them in earlier try and keep it clean and you should have success you can find more seasonal advice as well as video guides to key jobs in the garden at rhs.org.uk wisley creator colin crosby i've always had one favorite plant and it's a plant when as a youngster i saw it for the first time and fell in love with it and that was cornus cusa chinensis and there are many particularly good forms my favorite one's called wisley queen and it's just it is fantastic and you know i was so fortunate i saw it growing in the wild and you know people now joke about me and call me cornus crosby because it is such a fantastic tree with the bracts that come out in may time wonderfully white fading to pink then in August time, it's covered with strawberry-like fruits into the autumn, vivid ruby uh, autumn colour. And then the bark, which peels and flakes, and is quite similar to a eucalyptus. And it's the only tree I know that gives that four for the price of one value. So it's my ultimate favourite plant. And if I only one plant in a desert island, that would be my plant. So that's it from RHS Wisley and curator Colin Corners Crosby in this week's gardening podcast. Next time, get ahead with spring lawn care. Plus, we bring you advice from award-winning growers about the best spring flowers and give you an introduction to successful orchid growing. If you're looking for gardening activities in the meantime, why not celebrate the National Science and Engineering Week with the RHS from March the 15th to the 24th? We've created a garden science trail at RHS Wisley, Harlow Carr, Hyde Hall and Rosemore. Come and explore to see how plants are discovered, cultivated and reinvented to create medicine, fabric and colour. Or try the Grow Your Own weekend from the 23rd to the 24th of March, when all four RHS gardens will be packed with inspiration and expert advice to special talks and family activities. And make the most of planning your RHS show visits with our early bird ticket offers, which are running until the end of March. Again, details on our website. Until then, from me, Tony Dickerson and the team here in the gardens, goodbye.